once you realize that you have a problem, whatever it may be, whatever's holding you back, problems don't get better. Problems are like a rock in your shoe. They just keep boring and going deeper and deeper and deeper. Humans are wired to not want to change because that sort of predictability used to keep us safe in our past environments. Well, hey there. If we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they are created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. You may know that one of the lenses that I look through to evaluate the effectiveness of a podcast episode, both on other podcasts and certainly on the Path for Growth podcast, is did it actually impact the way that people act and think? And that is why I'm so excited to share this conversation with Michael Easter with you today, because literally I can already point to ways that this conversation that you're about to listen to has impacted tangibly the way that I act and think. Now, Michael's work and his background is pretty awesome. He was an editor of Men's Health Magazine. He currently works as a professor at UNLV, and he's recently become an author of a book called The Comfort Crisis. And really, he's recognized as one of the world's leading voices on how human beings can integrate modern science to create improved health, meaning, and performance in their life and in their work. He, he references tons of research and what tons of scientists have done and and what has been learned in the field of academia, he references all of that, but then he goes out and actually puts it to the test through experiential learning. And that's really what this book, The Comfort Crisis, is all about, which, first of all, isn't that a killer title for a book, The Comfort Crisis? Because Michael had this recognition that he was living a life that was comfortable, and it was out of that recognition that he said, I need to get uncomfortable. And that coincides with so much of what we teach here at Path for Growth, because we believe that comfort and growth never coexist. And so he went almost to the Arctic Circle in Alaska and spent 33 days up there with nothing but the stuff that he could fit in the backpack on his back. And he was there with two other guys. Unbelievable story. But what's so incredible is all of the takeaways that came from this experience. And that's certainly what we're going to be talking about today. But I think one of the things that makes it most compelling it's just the fact that if you look at where he was just a handful of years ago, it was so unlikely. My dad once got drunk on St. Patrick's Day, painted his horse green, rode it into a bar with a woman who wasn't my mom. <laughs> one, of my, one of my favorite stories, which is just hysterical, is that uh, one time my cousin uh, got thrown into the drunk tank like a night in jail. When he came to, he woke up and he was in there with my uncle. Like they, it was just this totally unplanned family reunion. So yeah, the men in my family have a history of drinking and raising hell. And I started seeing myself going down that same path. So if you would have looked at my life on paper, everything looked great. I owned a house. I was an editor at Men's Health Magazine, like a relatively high up position, blah, 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 on and on. Seems like I'm fine. But I was living that same life, right? Just didn't have a handle on my drinking. I always say that my favorite drink was the next one. So yeah. The favorite line that I had from the book was when you said, what was it? It was something to the effect of the statement, let's finish these beers and then ride these ATVs isn't exactly the model of a life you should want to live. It's like, yes. oh my gosh. That was totally me. Yeah, I had, I'd, I've had many dude, where's my car moments before. Just like, <laughs> 
I'm a, I'm a relatively laid back normal guy, but when I have a drink that changes very quickly. And so that started to take me down a route where I could see that the stuff that I'd accumulated like on paper, the stuff was going to fade away. But more importantly, just inside, I didn't, I didn't feel good. My life was just like falling apart. And I tried to stop drinking plenty of times before, never freaking worked out ever. And I just had this morning and I can't tell you why it was this one. Cause I'd had plenty like this before, but I woke up, the house was a mess, like thrown up just like, yeah, I was like seeing from like Montley Cruz, the dirt book or something, whatever reason this time I like very clearly saw if I continued drinking and like took this route that I was familiar with, that was like comfortable and complacent. I was probably going to die early in the book. I, I didn't know if I was going to die at 35, 55 or 75, whatever it is. I just knew that. This lifestyle is not going to work out the way you want. Or I could go the other path and I could try to get sober. And I saw that I had like an, for whatever reason, I just was like, I think there's an opportunity to try this thing. Now, this was terrifying because (laughs) when you, like when alcohol has been the thing that sort of almost encapsulates your life and makes you feel comfortable with the world being around people fixes all your problems. It's also the cause of them, but it's a really, really easy temporary fix, right? That's scary to give that up. But I decided to go with that scary, uncomfortable path. And man, it was tough for sure. But on the other side of that, like every single thing in my life got better. And I mean, across the board, I mean, physical health, mental health, my relationships. I didn't think that alcohol affected my job that much. And then like six months after I get sober, my boss pulls me into his office and he goes, what have you been doing? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, your writing is just way better. Like what happened? And I just made up some BS. I was just like, oh yeah, well, I started editing it more or whatever, you know, just something (laughs) stupid. But it was totally that, like everything improved across the board. So I think that made me see that oftentimes to improve our lives, we need to go through discomfort in some sort of way. And I'd also seen that in my work at Men's Health, whether it's you want to get fit, you're going to have to work out. Working Mm. out is uncomfortable. You want to lose weight? Probably going to be hungry. Being hungry, not super comfortable. And on and on and on. So, Man, like it's, it's pretty powerful that you kind of had that like quintessential rock bottom moment. And it's almost one of those things like you hear so many stories about how people experience drastic transformation as a result of a moment exactly like what you're talking about. And it's almost like you... You almost become more scared of the person that lives perpetually on mediocrity or scared of becoming that person than the person that hits bottom and turns around. And so I guess the first thing that I would ask you is what is the advice that that you would give to someone that may be dwelling? They're not at level zero, but they're also not at level 10. They're just dwelling right at a five and they're not everything that could be. But they're also it's not as bad as it could be. And so it's exactly what you said. It's comfortable. What would you tell that person right off the bat as we kind of start off this conversation? Yeah, I mean, I can kind of speak for myself is that, I mean, I think, first of all, the realization of where you are is important because once you, once you realize that you have a problem, whatever it may be, whatever's holding you back, problems don't get better. Problems are like a rock in your shoe. They just keep boring and going deeper and deeper and deeper. So if I hadn't fixed this, it would have gone to even deeper levels right? Also realizing that it's going to be hard to break out of that. Like humans are wired to not want to change because that sort of predictability used to keep us safe in our past environments, right? Like if we could kind of know what was in the future, we knew we'd at least be safe and like things could go on. So we don't like getting out of our 
comfort zones and changing things up. So just knowing that that's necessary. And then third for me, like I had to ask for help. Like I didn't know how to do this crap on my own. It's like I had all these <laughs> questions in my mind, like, well, how do you not drink? What happens if you're at a party and someone asks you if you want to drink? Oh man, what am I going to do at a wedding? When my best friend gets married, what am I going to do there? And oftentimes it's good to have someone to bounce that kind of stuff off of. So like I became friends with a guy who was older than me, but he got sober about the same age as I was. And he, when I was like, so what do I do if someone asks me for a drink at a party? He just goes, well, how about you say no thanks? <laughs> that simple, right? We get so in our heads about stupid stuff. And I think a lot of times what holds people back is just these random fears inside their heads that are all based on assumptions of other people's beliefs, other people's behaviors. And we also have this bias to think that everyone cares about me. What are they going to say if I don't have a drink? No one cares. <laughs> like once I actually did that and it was like awkward, I'm like, I realized, oh, no one even flinched. Maybe I'm not as important as I thought I was, <laughs> right? Mm, that's right. Yeah. Are you familiar with Jordan Peterson? Do you read any of his stuff or listen to him at um, all? I've listened to like a couple of his podcasts he's been on. So a little bit, but not, not really. So you should enlighten me a little yeah, bit. Yeah, well, so he's a, he's a clinical psychologist. And one of the things that he talks about a lot is, and especially in his newest book, he talks about like, you've got to be willing to look like a fool if you're ever going to be able to become a master. And, mm -hmm. and it's, I mean, because asking your friend the question hey, what do I do if someone offers me a drink? That feels like a little bit of a foolish question to ask. But if you're not willing to ask that question, it feels to me like there's something valuable in having community that is giving you kind of verbal validation for, hey, this is the right thing to do. Yeah, 100%. I think if people who have maybe are at the point where you want to be, then reaching out to those people and being okay with whatever answer they give you is also is, is great. Because sometimes you're not going to like the answer. But yeah kind of what you need to hear. Unfortunately, we don't always get pats on the back. It's like some people need a pat on the back. Some people sometimes need a kick in the ass, whatever it may be. Well, and I think that's the other thing associated with this, with this whole paradigm of becoming uncomfortable is like you read so much on the fact that as human beings, we have this incredible capacity for self-deception. Like I, I have an incredible capacity to call something that's an outrageous problem, not a problem. And so can you speak to how you personally self-evaluate in an honest way? Back then it was alcohol. It's something else now, right? So that you're never becoming complacent or never just plateauing on where you are today. Yeah, I think for me, so th there's a handful of things. I still lean on others for advice because I think sometimes people don't know what they don't know, right? Like, we just don't know what we don't know. So sometimes having the opinion of someone else that you trust can be helpful. Still today, I have friends where, you know, if I have, let's say it's some, I don't know, thing in a relationship or whatever, and I can be like, hey, here's kind of what happened. Here's how I'm seeing this. Do you have any other thoughts? And they'll be like, did you ever think about it this way? Like, well, no, I didn't. Thank <laughs> you for that. And I also think that realizing that we make a lot of assumptions. People are, I'm guilty of it. I'm always assuming what another person is thinking, why they did a thing they did, or what something means. And I think that realizing that most of the time we are wrong or inaccurate at best a lot of times. So like, if you think of, think of all the things that like we as humans all just absolutely think we absolutely have this down and know, like gravity, that seems pretty straightforward. Yeah, it's complicated. But like scientists right now are thinking, well, 
the way that we think of gravity, that's probably going to get upended in the next 500 years. It's like, like we're constantly changing how we view the capital T truth. Like there mm. really isn't one. So I think realizing that you might be wrong and going into situations with an open mind for me has been super helpful. Mm. And I think that kind of ties into where the book goes it is it's almost like we as human beings have this craving and, and we, especially Western society has set up our world around creating certainty and creating comfort and creating stability and creating security. And it's like, man, it feels a little bit like you just blew up all of that with the journey that you went on in this book. You're like, I'm just going to. But before we get to what you actually did, because it's pretty remarkable and the lessons that come from it are crazy. I'd just love to know your thoughts on it. It's outrageous that the very thing we set out like to to just create, like we will live our entire lives trying to create shelters of security and stability and comfort and convenience. And it's the very thing that what your book makes the case for is that we don't need. And so why, like, why is that or what's going on there? Yeah, I think that really in the book, I'm not so to quickly, like kind of give some context. As part of reporting this book, like its overarching narrative is this more than a month that I spent in the Arctic, just like carrying everything I needed to survive. We went on this long hunt, et cetera, et cetera. And so I kind of make the argument that humans evolved to always do what would be most comfortable for us because that used to keep us alive. So if you think of something like exercise is an easy one to grasp. It's like, why don't we like exercise? Well, because for 2.5 million years, any unnecessary movement was burning up energy and there wasn't really enough food to keep like you would never move if you didn't have to because that kept you alive they weren't doing the elliptical in their free time (laughs) no no sir and even things like being hungry it's like why do people tend to over overeat because like in the past when there wasn't enough food if you could overeat and store those extra calories on your frame as fat that gave you a survival advantage why do we avoid risk in things like business and sticking our necks out in public Well, because in our past environments, doing risky stuff could be a danger, right? So there's all these things that we evolved to do and these drives we evolved to have that don't necessarily serve us anymore. Because, okay, think of exercise. We totally engineered the need to move out of our days. To live was to have to put in effortful work. Not anymore. You could walk a thousand steps and live. Uh, Food-wise, we are swimming in food. It doesn't make sense to overeat all the time like we do now, right? risk. The world is not really that risky anymore, but we still like, we don't want to stick our necks out in public. We don't want to take risks in business that sometimes could pay off. It's just like we set out our entire life to kind of build these shelters of security and certainty. But like, I feel like one of the, one of the big takeaways that I got from your book is like, just as much as we need a degree of certainty, because we do, we also need uncertainty and discomfort to keep us alive. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that what has happened is that it, for all of time, it made sense to continue to make the world easier, more effortless, safer, more comfortable, all these different, all these different things. But now that we don't have to put in any, any effort to our days. We don't have to do risky stuff. That's, that's actually backfiring. So I'm not saying that like all this amazing technology and like the fact that we live in climate control and soft beds, I mean, it's freaking amazing. <laughs> but if you're always comfortable and always doing the easy thing, that's going to catch up with you in the long run. And we're seeing it in things like the nation's obesity rate, obesity mm. and over, overweight rate. We're seeing it in chronic diseases. 
only 20% of people hit the government's exercise guidelines. And they are exceedingly, I mean, it's like gardening is, is an activity. <laughs> like it's not hard stuff. It's not like go out and do CrossFit. It's very easy. We see it in our skyrocketing rocketing mental health rates. It's humans evolved to have an aversion to boredom. Boredom was this evolutionary cue that sort of told us whatever you're doing with your time, the uh, return on your time invested has worn thin. So go do something more productive. Well, now we have these phones that are like just this captivating way to kill boredom. But you could argue they're not really that productive because people just go on Instagram and look at nonsense anytime they're bored now, right? So I think there's all these ways that advances, over, especially over the last hundred years, are backfiring on us. Mm. And I want to get into some of those, especially the, the the chapter that you have in your book on the phone. I've never wanted to throw my iPhone in a lake more than whenever I I've read your chapter. <laughs> I mean, it, it's 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 just eye opening, but also awful all at the same time. But also helpful, I would say. But before we kind of get to those. How do you go from starting to having this realization of, okay, I need to induce some discomfort into my life. And also I want to share this journey with others. How do you go from that to not like, I'm going to set a timer on my phone, but to like, I'm going to go to Alaska for 33 days. (laughs) Like, first of all, is that just part of your personality? Are you a pretty extreme personality? I would say no. Like I'm generally, I mean, save for this trip, but I've always been relatively risk averse. Like motorcycles sound good. And then I look at the accident rates and I'm like, never riding a motorcycle, (laughs) not worth it. So like, no, it's not like I'm some crazy risky, you know, person. Okay. So that's actually really good to hear though. Cause I think that it would be really easy to listen to everything that you say in this conversation today and for people to write you off as someone that's unrelatable. But what you're saying is that before this trip, you were probably very relatable to a lot of the people listening. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. And I still am like, (laughs) and here's why. And I think your, your question like brings up a point humans for millions of years did the kind of stuff that I did in Alaska every single day. That was life. So if you had been born even 500 years ago, which in the grand scheme of time is not even a bat of an eye, you would be doing that stuff too. You just have the luxury of being born into a time and place of prosperity. So it's not like I say that because I think people are like, oh my God, you were outside for 30 days. That's right. You didn't take a shower for 30 days? What? (laughs) Yeah. You were hiking every day for 30 days. It's like, that's what people used to do all the time. (laughs) So like to, to, it is extreme, but only in the context of the life of the average person who'd be listening to a podcast today. But, but, and that, even that. I feel like shines light on how crazy average is today. Yes. Like what we call average, most of human history would look at and their mind would be boggled by. Yes, 100%. So to kind of go back and tell you how all this, pardon me, came together is I'd been working at Men's Health. I'm an editor at Men's Health. Through that job, I made that observation that I said that every, anything that usually improves us usually requires going through some sort of form of discomfort. Then I get sober. And then I do this story. I meet this guy whose name is Donnie Vincent, and he is a backcountry bow hunter and filmmaker. He kind of goes into the world's most remote, extreme places for one month, two months at a time. And he hunts. He makes these amazing documentaries that are sort of like planet Earth, but with hunting. Like they're not what you see on the outdoor channel. They're, they're really amazing, to be honest. We become friends from this men's health story. I do a, men's, a story about him and men's health. We become good friends. I'd spent a handful of days with him in Nevada, the backcountry of Nevada on that story. And then he invites me up to the Arctic for 30 days. 
But yeah, it was a little more than a month. And I'm like, all right, let's do it. Because I've had this realization about discomfort. And I think on that Nevada trip, I realized I had this realization that like, oh, like my life is really comfortable in a lot of ways. Because even just being up in Nevada for the mountains for it was like maybe a week, maybe a little less. It's like I got introduced to all this stuff that I just didn't ever feel anymore. Like boredom, like being cold all the time, like having to put effort into every single day, all this stuff. So I went up to the Arctic because I thought, well, what would, I wonder what would happen if you sort of put that on a big, at a grander scale. Was it a hard decision, Michael? I'll say this. We, (laughs) so Donnie is a really good salesman. (laughs) So he's like, dude, it's going to be the most epic thing of your life. Your <laughs> mind is going to be blown. We're going to see grizzly bears. We're going to see this. We're going to see that. And like when he's talking, like I'm picturing myself like, oh man, I'm going to be like a modern day Davy Crockett. This yeah. is going to be kick ass. The Revenant, know? like Leonardo yes. DiCaprio in The Revenant. <laughs> like, here we go. <laughs> totally. I'm like, all right, I'm in, man. Then okay. What did, your, what did your wife think though? Because you, you were married at this time, right? Yeah, I was married. So I, I signed on. I'll tell you that in a second. I signed yeah. on with Don. I'm like, yes, like I'm in. And then Donnie just is like, okay, you realize this is going to be more dangerous than Nevada, right? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I, I figured. And I go, well, how many, how, like, how much more dangerous? And he goes, 20 times. And I'm like, ah, 20 times? Like, I can handle that. Like, I thought you were going to say 50. And he goes, well, could be 50, could be 70. <laughs> could be 90 times more dangerous, Michael. And I'm like, yeah, shit. And at this point I'm signed on. So I go, but my wife, she knows that for my work, my work is non-traditional work. So I'm, I'm a professor at UNLV. And then the other half of my job is continuing to write. And I'm not on the Hill covering politics. I tend to like embed myself in interesting places with interesting people. So like I've done weird stuff before for work. So for her, this was like, well, this is a little more extreme than pretty much any other story you've ever done, but like, all right, this is your job. And as the ultimate form of trolling, while I was up freezing my butt off in the Arctic and starving and just encountering grizzly bears, her and my mother went on a cruise in the Greek islands. They were on like a <laughs> floating buffet, dude, like just the ultimate like burn. She's like... <laughs> Like I got back and I just like get this influx of text messages from her. And it's just like all these amazing meals they've been on. Like, oh, here's <laughs> us at that beach. And she's like, no, oh, this is messed up. Um, Literally no, the exact super- opposite of what you did is what they yes. did. <laughs> 100%. But no, she was really cool about it. Uh, okay. So now walk, walk us through just the journey to get out to where you are going, because it's so compelling. Even uh, for me, just like the number of steps it takes to actually separate yourselves from civilization is pretty remarkable. So walk us through a little bit of that journey. Yeah. So I live in Las Vegas. So I show up at McCarran International Airport filled with slot machines and stuff, right? Take a massive jet to Seattle, which puts me on another massive jet to Anchorage, which puts me on a sort of mid-size regional jet to a town called Kotzebue, Alaska, which is about 3,000 people. It's above the Arctic Circle. And from there, we get on a plane that seats four people. That thing flies us about 100 miles out into the middle of the Arctic. Now, it has these big um, tires on it that are called Tundra tires, and they're really underinflated, but it allows the plane to just land on any flat patch of ground. So it lands, but it's too big for where we're going with four person capacity. So then this other plane sort of swoops in, picks us up one at a time. 
And this plane only fits two people. It is literally a frame that is wrapped in this stuff the pilot calls special duct tape. <laughs> and it's this like sort of uh, plastic coated fabric, more or less. So when you get in this thing, like I'm in the back, but the pilot, the pilot is essentially sitting between your legs, kind of like on a bobsled and he's up at the controls. And then you fly, we flew that in maybe 30 something, 40 miles to just this one little strip of flat land, like on this butte, whatever. And that's where we started. So it, it took a couple of days and a bunch of flights. Yeah. And so at that point, you've got to, I, I would assume, come face to face with the realization that it's like, if we if we need to get out of here before 33 days, that's going to be a pretty challenging proposition. Yeah, the planes can't land in most places. So if something goes wrong, we had an emergency like Garmin thing. So we could send these sort of satellite texts to them in Kotzebue. But if you're in a strange area, which we were a lot of the time, if something goes wrong, you still need to get to a place where a plane could land. And the plane often can't land if the weather is too foggy or too windy, which it often is. So you have to be you have to be prepared to realize that if something goes wrong, it might be a day or two days before anyone shows up. And like Donnie's had situations where because of weather, he's gotten I mean, he goes up there a lot, right? He's gotten weathered in for like five days, past pickup days, and they had timed their food. So they're okay, five days without food. They're just in this tent, just waiting for the weather to break so a pilot can come get them. So it's not like, oh, with this emergency beacon, if I just press that little red button, all of a sudden the plane shows up in like half an hour, like, no, you're you're in it, you know. Man. Okay, so the plane leaves. And like mentally, where are you at? Are you stoked? Are you scared? Are you somewhere in between? And, and then walk us through a little bit of like what you have to start doing because you're out there with nothing essentially. Yeah. So I would say I was probably somewhere in between. Like I definitely felt this sense of adventure, but I also realized that I'm not going camping like in the Adirondacks for three nights. Like this is a little more intense. So I was definitely (laughs) apprehensive for sure because we're getting ferried. I just got, I, I got left alone out in the middle of the tundra for, oh yeah an hour, two, three hours, four hours, five hours, something like that. And it's at that moment that I realized like, I'm truly alone out here. And if you think about how we think of being alone in modern life, it's like, even if I go, okay, I'm going to, I need some alone time. What do we do? We usually go in our office, close the door, but then we're still connected. We're not really alone because we're still connected to people through our phones and our Instagram and all this other stuff, right? Well, up there, none of that. I don't have any of that. So I am truly capital A alone. And it was really sort of fascinating because having co- covered health for so long, the re- with the research, we know that being lonely is not good for people. We need human connection. But there's a big difference between loneliness and solitude. And so I argue in the book, what we have less and less of today is solitude. Now, solitude is time where you consciously disconnect from all sort of outside influences, from your phone, from other people, and take that time to introspect and think deeply um, about yourself, about like, what do I really want to do with life? What, how, like, come up with some ideas that are outside of the influence of what you find online when we often come up with ideas or do work. And that was really interesting. Like, I hadn't really thought about this idea of solitude that much until that moment. And when I got back, I chased it down. There's actually a lot of research that suggests that solitude 
can actually be really beneficial. And I mean, you see it throughout time as well. I think of Jesus going out to the desert for 40 days. The Buddha leaves the palace gates to sort of be alone. Even people like Mary Oliver, Abraham Lincoln, all these characters have really leaned into solitude to sort of live and think and work better. And so that was kind of one of the first interesting insights that I had, removing myself from everyday life, which I would never have got that had I tried to like report this book, a desk, not done the trip. Well, that's what I was going to ask is prior to sitting on that airstrip by yourself, do you think you were regularly experiencing solitude in any way up to that point in in your personal life? No. I mean, how many people do, right? Like I, and I don't think we were conscious of it because we're never, we're never truly in solitude. I feel like most people, even if I would to, were to go hike out in the desert, I would have maybe 15 minutes of silence, but then we're often plugging into music. We're taking a podcast. We're taking an audiobook, And I realize that's ironic because I'm here to talk about a book I wrote. <laughs> so I'm not saying that all these things we have in our life are bad at all, but I do think we need these moments of just like complete disconnection from other people, from outside media to just be in our head for a little bit without this outside influence. Yeah. And what's interesting is it almost seems like when you practice solitude properly, it actually more equips you to be around people the right way later. That That's what I've noticed, at least, is it's like it, loneliness is obviously toxic and bad. And one of the ways that it's toxic and bad is it leaves you less equipped to deal with people well. But it seems yeah. like solitude, like you can come back from an hour or even two days of solitude way more equipped. And it seems like there's something in the heart, like the heart behind it or the motive behind it. So can you talk a little bit to how, like, once you're back from Alaska, how do you how do you practice solitude now, Michael? Yeah, I think you made a really good point right there that it's in the heart. And I, when I tend to think about it as loneliness versus solitude, it's like, if you can learn to be okay with time with just with yourself that we inevitably will face in life, you don't have to worry about loneliness then, do you? (laughs) Right? Mm. Loneliness is that I can't freaking stand myself when I'm not around other people. I need to be a connector circuit, right? And this this is not me saying this. This is a lot of the psychologists that I talk to that are like, look, like we know we need social connection. That's good. But you can't only be a connector circuit because if and when those social connections fade, as they often do in life, you can't lean on yourself then you're going to find yourself in a little bit of a pickle, aren't you? So nowadays, I mean, I try to spend time alone, disconnected. I live on the edge of the desert. And so I will just go walk the trails for like 20 minutes some days, an hour other days, two hours. I'll trail run and just be totally unconnected for time, just completely in my head and leaning on that. And I often come back with pretty good ideas. If I don't remember an idea, once I get back home, it probably wasn't that great. But it is like one of the best ways too for me to come up with ideas. And I think that you see that backed up in a lot of psychology research when people are have more time to introspect and be unstimulated. They tend to come up with better ideas. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating what you say about like our inability to be alone with ourselves. I I mean, there's so There's so much written about guys like Steve Jobs and Michael Dell and Michael Eisner and all these leaders that we respect so much about literally putting time on their calendar just to think. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've noticed personally for myself, and because I've noticed it myself, I've observed it in others, is it's like, I will say something like, oh man, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice just to schedule an hour a day to think? 
But then when I do it, I have no clue what to do with that time. And and I see other people, they're like, I, I have no clue what to do with that time. And it's like, it's almost like, it's not that you can't have it. It's that when you do have it, you have no, like you're, it's so abnormal to you. So how, like, how would you advise people start to normalize solitude? And then I'd love to take that into a little bit of the, the, the other learning that you had, which is being bored. Yeah. Well, it's like exercise. When you first, if you haven't run a mile in five years, how's that first mile going to feel? <laughs> it's going to feel like absolute hell. It's going to feel like your lungs are collapsing in on themselves and your legs are like vats of acid, right? But what about the next time you do it? That's a little better. Still sucks, a little better. And then eventually, all of a sudden, it's like, I can run a mile, no big deal. And it becomes this really productive outlet because you've improved your ability to uh, be alone or run that mile, whatever it is, right? So I think that this ties into the overall lesson of the book is that things that are uncomfortable at first, by doing them, they often come with a benefit. And by repeating them, oftentimes we find that they aren't that bad and we benefit because of it. So onto the boredom thing, we are up there hunting, right? We're hunting this herd of caribou that is, they're called the Western Arctic herd. And so we're trying to catch them as they migrate from their summering grounds down to their wintering grounds. So you're kind of making predictions about where you think the herd is going to come through, and then you wait. Well, we were crappy predictors the first handful of days, for sure. So we just sit on this hill and do nothing. I mean, nothing. Didn't, my cell phone didn't work. I didn't bring books and magazines, and obviously I didn't bring a laptop or anything. So all of a sudden, I found myself bored again. Like, how often are people bored nowadays, right? And... To sort of get over the boredom, I had to do like weird stuff, right? At first, I'm like reading the labels on my cliff bar. I'm reading the labels on my jacket. Like, oh, you can't dry, the, dry clean this. Hey, guys, you can't dry clean this. Like, you're <laughs> just, it's just weird stuff. But then eventually, like when that would become boring, thought about a bunch of magazine story ideas for the magazines I write for. I wrote some of the book, came up with other ideas for how I could like improve my life, right? So boredom like I kind of mentioned at first, it's this evolutionary discomfort that tells us to do something. And that something is often productive. As we evolved, it would say, you know, your hunt is not working. Why don't you go pick some potatoes? Like boredom would kick on. It's like, ah, this hunt sucks. I'm bored. Let's go find some other food, right? So it was this productive outlet. And now, because we have these easy escapes from it in the form of phones and TV and radio and Netflix and computer screens and on and on and on. Just like a really easy way to deal with our boredom, but it's not really productive. So you look at the average person now spends more than 11 hours a day engaging with digital media. And it's like we, I think you see a lot of messaging around phones being that we overuse them. And it's like, yes, we know that, right? I think that everyone is, a, everyone uses their phone more than they would really like. But what the, that messaging often misses is that when people, let's say you take an hour off your screen time on your phone, well, people will often fill it with like time on Netflix. They go, oh, well now what do I do? I guess I'll just watch a couple episodes of The Office. It's like, that is the same thing, right? So I argue <laughs> in the book, <laughs> we need this time to go through boredom and not reach for that easy way to kill it because it'll often take us into ideas that are more creative. So they've done, uh, scientists have done studies where they'll get one group and they'll like, let them use their phone. They'll take another group and they will bore the crap out of them. And then they'll give them both creativity tests. And the group that was bored will usually come up with more better answers on these creativity tests because they've had time for their mind to like 
wander and think up and rest because when you're staring at a screen, anytime you're focusing outwardly on a screen or in a conversation, your brain is actually working really hard. But boredom is oftentimes more inward and it's like this rest and reset period. So there's, there's a lot of things that happen when we allow ourselves to get bored and see where that takes us. Yeah. And I think that's a really strong distinction at the end because I, I think, and I've probably been guilty of this before. It's like, I'm scrolling my screen. I'm bored or I'm watching Netflix. I'm bored. And in reality, the way you frame it is no, that's what you are doing because, because you're bored. That is not you being bored. Like you being bored is literally allowing your mind to wonder. And the TV or Netflix or the phone represents an escape for that. That's actually not helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not saying that like phones and Netflix are bad, but I am saying that maybe 11, 12 hours is a lot of time on those things. And I wonder what would happen if we even brought it down to nine, eight, seven. Well, it's crazy to me. It felt like one of the takeaways that I got from the book and even the way you're talking about it now is it's like, man, that real wondering when you really allow your mind to wonder like you were doing there on on, there on that hillside waiting to shoot something. It's like it almost always relates in some external contribution. Like it almost always like results in me thinking about how I can use what I have to whether it's writing a magazine article or something else. And I think that doesn't happen as much when I'm watching Netflix. Like I'm not thinking that much about contribution when I'm watching The Office. No, no. And I, I mean, for me, at least, like I come up with my best ideas usually after I've been disconnected from some time. Sometimes like I'll go out in the desert and at first I'm just thinking of weird crap. I'm still focused on my like my schedule or like weird ideas pop in, but then I'll kind of get an I like some idea will spring forth and then I'll kind of start to build and build on that and I'll leave with something interesting that I just wouldn't have gotten from staying at home and be- being around sort of really connected to everything. I think we need these periods of removal. We used to have those in our past all the time. We don't really anymore. Yeah, I was, my dad is reading a book on Teddy Roosevelt right now. And man, that guy was a force. But one of the things that we were talking about is like Teddy wrote like a naval history of the war of 1812 when he was in college. Like, like yeah. he wrote the book when he was in college and it's still studied at West Point today. And it's like, you ask yourself, when did they have the time to do this? And it's like, well, what else were they going to do? Like, I don't know what else you would possibly do. Yeah. And so I guess what's interesting now is, is it's, I mean, you kind of look, it's like, we have all these luxuries of, of not having to live when Teddy lived. But at the same time, we have all these luxuries now right. that are keeping us from living the way Teddy lived. And how do you, it almost seems like it would be easier at times to be in Teddy's spot where he didn't have the phone vying for his attention. So how do you live? Teddy's probably shaking his head at me right now, but how, how do you live in moderation when you have access to those things, but you don't want to be consumed by them? Yeah. Well, I will say that Teddy probably would have had a ton of Instagram followers with that <laughs> lifestyle not- he lived. I think it is, I'm not like in the book, I'm not saying that like delete your Instagram and do all this. I mean, if you think that that is helpful to you, go for it. For me, it's scheduling out time of disconnect, like periods of disconnection. So I do that on a small scale every day, but I also will take a big outdoor trip at least once a year where I'm just completely off the grid for at least three, four, five, six, seven, eight days, because that really just kind of removes you. And in the book, I talk about how humans evolved in nature. And now we spend 95% of our time indoors. And there's so much research that says 
when we get back into nature, like there's a host of benefits, um, physical health, mental health, productivity, creativity. And I think really this idea of spending at least three days a year, like totally off the grid is really beneficial. There's this idea called the three day effect. And they've done, uh, when they do studies, they find that after the third day in sort of backcountry nature, where you aren't connected to your devices, people's brains start writing what are called alpha waves. And these are the same waves that are found in experienced meditators. So it's like this more contemplative way of thinking, more self-awareness, more satisfaction with your life. It's kind of like a slowing down of time happens. And we don't ever get those in the modern world because things are just so frenetic. Think of like your cell phone beeping, like all the asks that come in. So I think we do need these periods where we you know, have shorter times of disconnection, but also some longer times. And if people always say like, I could never go like off the grid into the woods for a week. And I always, I'm like, okay, that's fine. One, if you would have been born a couple hundred years ago, you would be an outdoorsy person in the sense (laughs) that you lived outdoors. But number two, like I talked to the researcher about this and she was like, look, if you're that type of person, just rent a cabin, but don't like find a place that doesn't have cell phone service. And like, Get a place that doesn't have a TV or don't turn on the TV. Don't bring your cell phone. Like you just need this place where you can be exposed to nature and away from everything. And, and it, it almost seems like the excuses because almost immediately, like if you start to practically think through, how could I put that into action? There's objections that come to mind and there's all these objections to why I can't do that or why I shouldn't do that and all of that. And especially in the, the life of the business leader, what we see is, man, those objections might be evidence that you are growing your business at a pace that you should not be growing it because what you are saying it feels like is you need. It's not even you want. It's you need. If you're going to be an optimal performer, you need to do these three days, five days, eight days where you're able to be off if you're going to be your best for other people. I mean, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, totally. And I think that you see a lot of, there's a lot of interesting research around pre productivity after unconnected times. So the neuroscientist I talked to, she says, you know, I'll go give presentations on this and people come up to me after and be like, I have way too much to do. This is just another thing that scientists say I need to do to be, to be healthy, but I got too much stuff. And she frames it in terms of productivity. It's like, if you are sitting at your, at your desk on your computer all the time, trying to grind it out from nine to five, Let's say you can produce 19 widgets, right? Well, if you take these unconnected periods, it actually leads to a productivity boost and creativity boost. So you might be able to come back and pump out 20 over the course of a day, 20 widgets, and they're also more creatively designed, right? So it's like, by thinking that you can just grind through everything, I feel like that has kind of been a message in the business community, especially like entrepreneurial. It doesn't work like that, man. Like... (laughs) Like neuroscientists, neuroscience doesn't work like that. We need, our brain needs times of introspection and downtime if it's going to perform well in our periods of trying to be productive, trying to come up with ideas. And that's just, I mean, that's backed by thousands of years of thinkers. Mm. But I think, I think you're friends with, I know you were on his podcast, Jason McCarthy at GoRut, correct? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. We had him on our program and there was one line that he said that has just continued to stick out to me. He said it kind of in passing, and he said it doesn't have to be fun to be fun. And and he literally said that, and I was like, that doesn't make any sense. And at the same time, it makes all the sense in the world. Like it makes all the sense of the world. And and 
like I noticed there was a shift for me when I started doing marathons and Ironmans and stuff like that and started doing a, a bunch more outdoorsy stuff that there was a shift for me where I didn't understand that concept to where I started to understand what embrace the suck and it didn't have to be fun to be fun actually meant. Mm-hmm. And, and I've always tried to, to, to understand or to pinpoint like what causes that shift. And, and so number one, I would like to know, was that a shift that occurred for you where it almost became fun to be uncomfortable? And it, does any of the science or anything say anything about what causes that shift or that, that paradigm change? Yeah. And I, I agree with that. A hundred percent. It is like this weird koan, Zen koan riddle thing, right? It's like, <laughs> what does that mean? And then you like experience, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. <laughs> no, I I definitely agree. And I'll, I'll kind of throw out a few things. One, I think that when you look at an average person's day, we do the same stuff day in, day out. I mean, if you're listening and you're like, well, no, yesterday I ate this meal and today I ate this meal. It's like, I mean, like, look at your schedule, though, across the across the days, weeks, months and year. Like we basically do the same stuff every day, more or less. There's a good reason for that is that humans love predictable routines because in our past environments, having that element of predictability used to keep us alive. If we knew where our food was coming from and where we could go get it. We would stick to that routine all the time because it kept feeding back into our survival. Right. If we could predict where a grizzly bear was. That helped us survive. And what happens now in the modern world, because our lives are so safe and predictable, is that it can cause our brain to kind of go on what these scientists at Cambridge that I talked to called autopilot mode, where instead of being sort of present and aware of what you're doing and like focused in your life, like just aware of how you feel and like what's going on around you, you're kind of just like sleepwalking through life, they told me. And I can totally identify with that. It's like, think of what did you do like, two weeks and one day ago. But I don't know. Who knows? So when we have these predictable routines, it's sort of like we don't really leave any memories, any impressions in our scrapbook. And I think that when you shake things up and you go do something hard for the sake of it being hard, you remember every minute. (laughs) Right? You're not forgetting Alaska for 33 days would be my assumption. (laughs) I can remember every single day. I can remember the dumbest stuff, the dumbest lines. Because it was just totally like out of my routine. And also it was, it was challenging. And so I was forced to be present and aware. When you do and you learn new things, all of a sudden autopilot doesn't work because your brain is in a situation that it's never been in before. So it has to be forced into presence and focus. That is ultimately what meditation is popular right now. Ultimately, that's what meditation is chasing is this idea of awareness. But just by like doing totally new radical things for you, you get forced into that awareness. So there's definitely some some overlap. And so when I think of you talking about doing your Ironman, it's like you're putting your brain and body in this position that it's never been in. And you're going against 2 million years of wiring telling you like, why are you just, why are you moving for the sake of it? Like, and I think too, so besides that whole, like, wake up, you're going to remember this. I think too, that humans had to move a lot as we evolved to survive. Like part of the reason our body's built the way it is, is we would run down prey. And this could take 10 miles, 15 miles, 20 miles. And then we'd spear it and have dinner. And I think that something probably happens at a certain point where we don't think we can keep going, but we get this surge of, of something that tells us kind of to keep going. Mm. And it's something that we're not definitely not familiar with in life today, because we're never forced into those moments where we kind of have to dig deep. And those are super memorable. And it kind of tells you, teaches you something about yourself. Like 
oh, I have this gear that I didn't even know was there, you know? Man, I, I, I love that. And, and my next thought from that is, okay, once you've bought into that, how, how do you create a culture where the people around you also buy into that? Because there, there's so many leaders that we see, they, they have this, they have this get it factor around like, man, I, I, I want to be uncomfortable because if I'm uncomfortable, then I'm growing. And then they come to the same realization as, man, I want my team to have this mindset of it doesn't have to be fun to be fun. And I want us mm-hmm. to enjoy the process together. What advice would you have for leaders in that that can't maybe plan a 33-day retreat to Alaska with their team, but want yeah. to do something that shocks the system a little bit? Yeah, totally. And yeah, in the book, you know, I talk about this idea called Masogi. And it's sort of getting into this. It's that like, I learned it from a guy who's, he's a doctor, went to Harvard, decided he didn't want to be a traditional doctor and decided he was going to revolutionize sports science. And he totally did it. He has this, this company called P3 and they have contracts with like the NBA and world soccer and he applies all this deep data and everything. But he also realizes that what improves the performance and potential of humans, it can't always be measured. So once a year, him and some people will go out and they'll do a really just kooky, made up, hard physical task. And so the rules are that it has to be truly hard, which he defines by saying we only have a 50% chance of finishing this thing. And then rule number two is that you can't die. Now, that one's pretty simple. But so they've done things like they've walked a 85 pound rock underwater. They've stand up paddleboarded for 25 miles. And I'm not suggesting anyone go do that. But I am suggesting that there's something to the idea of putting yourself in a physical and mental position where you might fail, but you keep going. And by not failing, you really learn something about yourself. So I do think that there is some wisdom in there because when you think about at least pre-pandemic office culture, it's like, what would we do to build the team? I worked at a, I worked in a corporate setting when I was at Men's Health for a lot of years and like, Hey guys, we got you pizza. Come. (laughs) That's a men's health. Come on. Men's freaking health, dude. (laughs) And it's like, okay, now you guys are going to talk about things other than work. Have fun. Yeah. You talking? What'd you do this weekend? It's just like, it's so boring. And it's just like, you don't learn anything about your coworkers or anything about yourself in a situation like that. So I think like, what can you do that is going to be a reasonable challenge where your team is forced to work together on something outside? Like what if one day you're like, Hey, we're all just going to go for a hike today. And we're going to do, or we're going to do a go ruck challenge. We're going to do a six hour go ruck challenge as a team, right? And your team's going to be forced into teamwork. They're going to get put in stressful positions where they are forced to help each other sort of pull through whatever the situation is. And you learn a lot more about each other and about yourself by doing something like that, rather than what we've traditionally done, I think in business, which is, I don't know, like I said, like, okay. Everyone gets cake because it's Susan's birthday. Come talk about Susan. <laughs> Dag nabbit, Susan, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go for a hike or something, Susan. Okay, I, I know we're almost at time. There's there's two things I really want to hit on before we go. The, the, the first one is a little bit of a hard gear shift, but I think it's so important. And, and it was just such a, a light bulb moment for me. 
you weren't you weren't an avid hunter before you went on this trip and you end up shooting your first caribou and it was like this pretty pivotal moment it felt like for you and what you draw out of it with regard to the life cycle I think is fascinating so I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about that and what you learned there and how that connects to this trip that you took to Bhutan too Bhutan or Bhutan I don't even know how to say it but I I think it connects to the whole business idea of starting with the end in mind and so I I'd love for you to share a little bit about what you learned in that. Yeah. So I had never hunted, right? And when I decide I'm going to go up to the Arctic with Donnie, he tells me, I think you should, I think you should hunt. And my initial reaction was, I am not anti-hunting at all. Like I have always eaten meat. And so I can see a disconnect between being anti-hunting and then also eating meat. But I didn't necessarily want to pull the trigger myself. And after talking with Donnie, he said, look, I think you're really going to understand like why we go up there and why we do what we do if you hunt. And what occurred to me, I probably am not wanting to hunt because I don't want to cross what I know is going to be an emotional barrier. And we get up there and we, long story short, I end up hunting. And we got in a position where we had to crawl across the tundra and these animals cross this apex. We had sort of, it worked out perfectly as planned. and. I shot this really old caribou that had a limp. And it's like, right after I pulled that trigger, I was like, oh man, like, what have you done? There's just, there's no coming back from this. Like this, you're a terrible person. Like I was just bent out of shape. Right. And we walk over to the animal. Donnie is like, Hey, I'll, I'll be back. I'm going to go get your gear. Cause we dumped a lot of gear and just had a moment with it. And I was totally, totally bent out of shape. Right. I just felt terrible. And then Donnie and William, who was also with it, with us, we started to break the animal down. And all of a sudden, like my mindset shifted because once you start to field dress an animal, like I could see like, this is meat and this is what I'm using it for. And I eat meat every single day of my life. And never once do I feel this way about that meat. So like, why is that? Right? <laughs> That's an interesting realization. And it made me think just about the life cycle in general, the idea that in order for one thing to live, another has to die, but also about my own mortality. And so I started looking into when I got back about how different cultures view death. And I think in the United States, kind of as I was before going up to the Arctic, we don't want to engage with mortality at all. So this goes from our food system, from the fact that meat is presented in these nice little packages, and it doesn't really look like it ever came from a living thing. Even the words we use around it, try to skirt around the fact that it's from a live animal to our funeral systems, where when someone dies, we make them look as alive as possible for sort of one final viewing. And then we put them in the ground and we're told to take our mind off it, right? Don't be conscious of it. And also even things like when you look at people over 65 years old, only half of them have even thought about the fact that they're going to die and like tried to do any planning. So I go to Bhutan and I went there because they view death very differently in that country. Now, Bhutan is fascinating because it is one of the least developed nations on earth when you look at UN economic metrics, but they're also one of the happiest. So they consistently score in the top 20 happiest countries on earth. So that's kind of strange, right? Yeah. It's like, why do we chase economic metrics? Because that's going to make us happier. It's going to make us more fulfilled. But they can consistently kick our butts in happiness ranking, right? And they have got there's, there's not even a stoplight in the entire country. I mean, that'll tell you 
how underdeveloped that's probably why they're so happy they're just going on (laughs) they just never had to stop (laughs) yeah it could be (laughs) um and there's a variety of reasons uh why they tend to rank so highly in happiness but one of them uh is probably their relationship with death and it's very different it's death is woven into Bhutanese culture from their artwork to like cultural dances and festivals they have and even Everywhere in the country, there's these little molded clay pyramids that are molded out of clay and the ashes of the dead. And they're everywhere. I mean, like every windowsill has them all along the road. So they're constantly reminded of the fact uh, that they're going to die. And people are even told, hey, once a day, think about your own death. And so I wanted to know, like, what does that do for them? And so I met with a guy who's uh, an economist. He went to Oxford and now he runs a lot of the economic stuff in the country. And then I met with a Buddhist leader and this guy was located in a, in this shack that's like right by a monastery. And it's like up this super gnarly cliff road. And my driver, you have to have a driver there, has like a smart car. And this guy freaking like Baja 500, that thing up there. I mean, it was just insane. And I thought I was going to have to like buy him a new car by the time I left, but he managed. So then I walk along this trail for a while. I get to this guy's shack. And it's very simple. It's like the first room, there's nothing in it. The second room is like this kitchen that has like an electric cooktop and it's like a bucket system sink. And I go into the, there's this drape and I go into the third room and there's like the statue of the Buddha. There's all these incense burning. And I look and like, (laughs) there's like, the light is coming through the window, catching the smoke. And through this smoke, I can see this dude's face and he just, he's in full monk's robes, orange robes. And he turns to me and he's like, welcome. And it's just like, (laughs) Holy hell, this is, I mean, this is like the cliche, right, of the Western gangly writer coming to see the guru, like 100%. But this guy is a real expert on how we should view the end of our lives, even has a book about it. I think it's called like Manifesting a Mindful and Peaceful Death or something like that. And he just said, well, first off, what's interesting about him is he lived in America for a little while because he was dating the Dalai Lama's translator. So we lived in Atlanta for like five years, a long time ago. And so, and so he kind of has a sense of like, what do Americans focus our energies on? And it's like, he said, we live our life like a checklist. Like, okay, I graduated high school. Now I got to go to college. Once I graduate college, I got to get a job. Then I got to get a car. Then I got to find a mate. Then I got to get married. Then I got to buy a house. Then I'm going to have some kids. Then I'm going to upgrade my car. Then I'm going to get a different job. Then I'm going to start my own business. And it's all this checklist stuff. And he says, a lot of times you guys chase the checklist. I have to hit this metric. I have to do this thing because that's what's going to make me happy. Whereas in Bhutan, they don't worry so much about the checklist and the stuff that comes from the checklist, from having a bigger number in your bank. They're more concerned with living in the moment, which sort of brings up this idea of mindfulness, which is one of those words where you heard it so much like you're just like, what the hell do you mean? Yeah. But I think really what it means through talking to him is just realizing that this ride is going to end eventually, because in America, we don't realize that. We just kind of do these things, and we're not even sure why. Like, why do you get married at 23? Why do you go to college? Why do you do all that? We don't stop and reflect. Whereas in Bhutan, I think they do. And a lot of that is because when you realize that one day you were going to die, it can change your behavior in a positive way. All of a sudden, you start asking those hard questions. Why am I doing this? How do I want to spend my time? What is that important to me, right? And if you don't have those moments, then you can find yourself spending a lot of time on stuff that's not really going to move the dial for you happiness-wise. But if you are 
put in those positions to ask the hard questions, you can change your behavior in such a way that is going to ultimately improve your happiness over time because you're doing what's truly going to matter to you. And this is actually borne out by research in the West. Like it sounds like this kooky thing that from a guru in Bhutan, but they've done research at Stanford, at University of Kentucky, at all these different places. And they find that when, pe- when people start to think about their own death, it changes their behavior in such a way that they end up happier. Mm. Though it's not comfortable to do that, right? Kind of terrifying. That's it is right. the most uncomfortable thing you could think of. But beyond that is something positive I think people can find. Oh, that's thank you for sharing the fullness of that story. I, I just hear that and it makes me more grateful too. Like when you think about the long term and honestly, when when I would assume when you came face to face with what life could be being out there for 33 days, it probably made you for uh, really grateful for the small things that make life what it is, would be my assumption. Oh, 100%. It's like, I was telling someone the other day, when I flew up there on those 747s, I'm like, flying sucks. I'm cramped. I'm in this chair that's too small. The coffee on flights is always crappy. The movies they have on the screen, they're terrible movies. They're never good right? There's just all these things that I can point out as like flying socks. But it's like when I get out of the Arctic and I get on that plane to go from Kotzebue back to Anchorage, I hadn't sat in a chair for a month. All of a sudden that what I used to think was crappy (laughs) flight chair, I'm like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. And then the flight attendant comes by with coffee. It's like, oh my God, this is amazing. It's warm. And I (laughs) I didn't have to walk down to the stream where there's grizzly bears and tote the water back up and heat it up to have it. I get in the bathroom, that cramped closet-like bathroom, there's warm running water coming out of the faucet. And it's like, when it hits my hands, I'm like grinning like an idiot. You know what I mean? And this is at 30,000 feet in the air. Like, that's insane. It's 100% (laughs) insane. And we forget that because, and there's a good reason for that. There's this um, idea called prevalence-induced concept change. And it basically, long story short, is it says that humans don't really have a good ability to see how good they have it. What we do is we look for, our brain is designed to look for problems. So we adapt to our circumstances really quick and anything that is quote unquote less than, we just like, oh, that sucks. That's problematic. I hate that, right? We don't have an ability to take the long-term and see Mm. how good we have it in the grand scheme of time and space. So it's like, once I got back from Alaska, all of a sudden you can, like, I'm not getting worked up over stupid little stuff because I'm just like, it doesn't matter. And it's like, we have it so good. But we just are never put in a position to see that. So I think Alaska sort of gave me that by being away for so long. But I think for the average person, even like an overnight camping trip, doing it light and going back there and being like, when you get home, you're like, oh, man, I'm so glad to have a meal that isn't from that isn't backpacking mush. You know what I mean? It's like your best meals are often those like after you've gone for a long fishing trip or camping trip or done something hard, like probably the first time you ate a bunch of food after an Ironman, it's probably delicious, right? You're like, oh my God, this is amazing. (laughs) That's right. Almost threw up and then it was delicious. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. Oh man. Well, I'll tell you, I know we're at time, but I, I just, we have a core value at Path for Growth and the core value is alignment. And that's just the idea that, that we value when people don't just give a message, but they live the message that they give. And man, that's what I find so inspiring about you and your story is you're not just talking about this stuff, you're living it. And and that's just so cool to see. So thank you for that. And thank you for allowing us to vicariously live through it. 
Before the final question, I want to make sure people know how they can stay connected to you and and tell us a little bit about the book and where they can get it as well. Sure. So the book is called The Comfort Crisis. It is available wherever you find books. It's on Audible. It's on, if you read print, it's on Amazon, bookstores, whatever. Uh, my website is eastermichael.com. As far as social goes, I'm probably most active on Instagram and I'm at Michael underscore Easter. And if that's it, that's the only <laughs> that's way. All, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what else is He's not there. taking phone calls right now. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Okay. Final question for you. We've got people that, that would probably characterize their schedules as full, that value mindfulness and value the idea of challenging themselves, but but need it to be in such a way that they can make it happen, right? And And they want to practice it. So what are three practices that you would advise if they could just start doing these small things, it would be a step in the right direction towards blowing up a little bit of this comfortability bubble that we're all living. Yeah, I'll, I mean, we've touched on some of them, but I'll go back to that idea of Misogi once a year. Pick one thing that is truly hard for you. I kind of lay out how you do this in the book, but like you got to have a true 50-50 shot and be honest with yourself. You don't have to train for it. Just pick a random day, make it something weird. Like, I don't know if you're out hiking, it's like, oh, there's this rock at the head of the trailhead. I'm going to pick up this rock and carry it to the end of the trail. Like just make something up. It's got to be hard because you're going to face that point where you don't think you can keep going. But if you do keep going, you can look back and be like, man, I undersold my potential there. It's like, where else am I selling myself short in my life? Right? Like you want to face that moment. So I think that's something boredom. find boredom, find it alone. Cause then you're all of a sudden it's like, you're hitting solitude, you're hitting boredom. Just take a walk without your phone, do it in nature, even better, right? You're hitting like three things right there. And well, like I just ended on, think about your death and think about it in a way that freaking terrifies you. Cause that might change your behavior in a way that not only makes you better at your business by not getting caught up in the minutia that I think some people can freak out about and help you see like, the long view about what's important, what's our core mission, how are we going to carry that out, but also just make you easier to be around for your family and friends, right? Like it'll just help you realize what matters and why you have a business in the first place. Oh, I love it. Michael, so grateful for you, for your time, for your message. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Alex. That was a lot of fun. Well, my gosh, Michael is just the real deal. And I'm so grateful to him for his time, for his investment and honestly, just for his example and commitment to being uncomfortable, to to put himself in the type of situations that honestly, there's sometimes where I just cringe. I feel cold hearing some of his stories and then us getting to learn from everything that he took away from that. And that's kind of the challenge that I feel all of us should take from this conversation is how can you press the limits of what's comfortable today? Like it doesn't have to be 33 days in Alaska, but how could you stretch your capacity and stretch your ability by doing things that make you uncomfortable today? That could be physically, that could be socially, that could be emotionally with regard to vulnerability. But what does it look like for you to expand your territory by doing things you've never done before? Because when you do things that you've never done before that make you out outrageously uncomfortable. What is the result of that? Well, the result of that is growth. 
And that really is the theme of this entire book, The Comfort Crisis. I'll tell you, it was a blast for me to work through this book in preparation for this conversation. Like I said, it impacted the way that I act and think and continues to do so. I listened to it on Audible, but you could absolutely get the hard copy as well. We'll put the link to all of those resources in the show notes. Hey, thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I would be so grateful if you shared it with someone that you know that would get value from this conversation. That's one of the things that I've found is I keep talking to friends of mine about this topic of discomfort, and there's something about getting other people involved in your own commitment to discomfort and therefore growth that makes it a little bit more bearable, but also also a little bit more exciting. So we'd be so grateful if you would share the link to this podcast. Also, any ratings or reviews you leave for us are always so encouraging and so helpful to us. It's it's so awesome to hear about how you are using this podcast and putting it into action in your life. The final thing I want to let you know is that every Wednesday, we send out an email called Worth It Wednesday. It's a principle worth learning, a question worth answering, and a recommendation worth taking. I just have a ball writing these emails, and so does our team, and we'd love for you to be a part of that community. It's growing pretty rapidly, so if you want to get on that email list, you can click the link that's in the show notes. We'd love to have you on board. Hey, thanks so much for listening today. Remember, we're rooting for you. We want to see you win. My strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. 